traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Among its other miseries, COVID-19 imperils one of the greatest achievements of recent decades, the stunning reduction in global poverty. From 1990 to 2019, the number of extremely poor people living on less than $1.90 a day fell from over a third of the world's population to just 8%. Now, for the first time in over two decades, that number is rising fast. How many millions will slip back into penury and for how long depends on what the rich world is willing to do about it while dealing with its own tensions and budget deficits. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, how do you prevent a pandemic of poverty? My guest is David Malpass, the president of the World Bank. The bank was founded in 1944 to support the rebuilding of a Europe devastated by total war. But in the last 50 years, it shifted its mission to ending extreme poverty. In 2019, it lent over $45 billion, but does it have the tools to face today's unprecedented task? Before joining the World Bank, President Malpass was US Treasury Undersecretary for International Affairs and formerly an economic advisor to Donald Trump's election campaign. He's a veteran of both the Reagan and Bush senior administrations, and before that was on Wall Street, chief economist at Burr Stearns, an investment bank that collapsed in 2008 during the financial crisis. David Malpass, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hello, nice to be with you. And also with us is Henry Kerr, our economics editor. Welcome back to the show, Henry. Good to be back, Anne. President Malpass, you've been in the job for little over a year now. Before you joined the World Bank, you questioned its very existence in 2017. I think you told a House subcommittee that globalism and multilateralism had gone substantially too far to the point that they were hurting the US and global growth. Tell me, why did you want to take this role? The challenge is is a big one and an important one. There are countries around the developing world uh, that can have great benefits from the support provided by the World Bank and by other development agencies. Uh, also, of course, very importantly, by the private sectors. Globalism is a, a bit different in that it goes to the idea of there being a big entity, a global entity that in some way has the best interests of people in mind. And I'm skeptical of that. I think the better way to think about it is as a set of good country programs. That's what we're trying to achieve uh, at, at the World Bank and also good regional programs, countries working with their neighbours. There's a lot of talk at the moment about the global the multilateral system being under strain evidently or something of a sceptic about its benefits. But I wondered if your opinion had really changed since you started heading up the bank from that statement that it had gone too far. Is that still your belief? 
Yes, that's still my belief. There were too many conferences and not enough focus on people doing well in, in developing countries, especially the poorest people. I think we're making good progress. We're having a much clearer focus at the World Bank on achieving good country outcomes through our programs. Uh, let's just talk about the context of crisis management at, at the moment, something you couldn't have foreseen, of course, when you came into the job would be the coronavirus crisis and its massive global impact economically, socially and certainly on poverty. But I'm also very interested that you came to, to this job with a practical background. You were at the Treasury, but you were also on Wall Street and you you, you wrote a, an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, which I, I guess comes back to haunt you sometimes, saying don't panic about the credit market. And that was shortly, half a year before Burr Stearns, where you were chief economist, collapsed. A lot of people had a lot of learnings, to put it politely, from that period. So what were yours? Well, with regard to that specific article, the Wall Street Journal puts the titles on articles. If you read the article, that was, I think, in August of 2007. So the stock markets went up substantially uh, from that point. And the article was explaining why at that point in 2017, it wasn't destiny that was at work. The learning uh, is the complexity of markets and also the danger of, of debt bubbles and of misanalyzing the, the risk of various forms of debt. You know, I was, a, I was a financial analyst on Wall Street in 2005, 6, and 7, one of the highest rated in the world. And yet the full magnitude of the debt that had been accumulating was hard to see all of the ramifications of that. If we look at our current situation, uh, is similarly, it's hard to grapple with the full ramifications of this uh, com combined, the pandemic and the economic collapse, uh, especially the collapse in the advanced economies spills over to the developing countries in a way that means that the economic downturn may, may go on for a long time. What the World Bank is trying to do is mitigate the human catastrophe underway uh, and then begin laying the groundwork for a recovery on the other side. Henry, over to you. Perhaps we could talk a bit about uh, the effect of the pandemic on the World Bank's long-term goals. So when you took the job, the aim of the institution was to reduce the share of the world's global population living below the poverty line to 3% by 2030. Is that still possible in the context of what's happened since? I don't think so. Even uh, before the pandemic, uh, there were concerning trends in poverty. As countries' growth slowed down, they weren't making as much progress as had been hoped. Another thing going on is Poverty is hard to measure, and when devaluations occur, the people at the in the bottom half of the population are harmed the most. Uh, that's because they usually are earning a small amount of money in the informal economy, in largely denominated in the local currency, and so when it goes down in value, their earnings go down, and that that pushes them directly into poverty or extreme poverty. For example, Egypt had a major devaluation, and so the poverty numbers must have gone up, but the data has been lagging. The World Bank and the IMF had been lowering their global GDP forecasts quarter by quarter in the year prior to the pandemic. So the pandemic hit at a point of, of already weakness in the global GDP outlook. There's been a lot of debate about what is necessary to help poor countries through the crisis. One thing that's been suggested by uh, last year's 
Nobel Prize winners, Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo, is that the world needs a sort of COVID-19 Marshall Plan for the world's poorest countries. Do you agree with that framing? I agree that there needs to be more resources for the developing countries, and it would be uh, good if a portion of that came from development assistance. So the World Bank is rapidly ramping up and having a surge in both the grants that are being made to the poorest countries and the loans that are being made to developing countries. That's occurring already in April, May, and June, and will extend all the way for another 12 months and we'll be evaluating the results. Another really important factor in this is the participation of the private sector. In even the poorest countries, that's critical to have that begin to rebound. Oftentimes that means a regulatory improvement. An easy example is for women to be able to keep the money that they earn if they're if they're doing tasks within their economy. There's been legal obstacles to the participation of women within economies. We're working rapidly to try to break down those barriers. The bank's overall response strategy to the pandemic has been complex, but some of it is front-loading. It's reprioritizing what must be a finite aid bucket. If you're spending more on the pandemic, what are you going to be spending less on and doing less of? Part of this is the timing of when the available resources go out. Given the pandemic, we think it's important that they go out quickly. We did that in in April with the health emergency response. We were able to develop uh, in a very short period of time new programs in 104 countries that could help the country make the purchases that they need for health emergencies. So those resources won't be available later because they've been expended now. Looking over the next 12 months, there's a similar uh, effort underway to see where countries can get the best use of resources. Quite a bit of it depends on what the country wants to do. One uh, possibility is to have money flowing to people themselves. The technology now is at the point where there can be electronic transfers that are very inexpensive to carry out, where the money uh, goes to the person, oftentimes to a woman who would otherwise be left out of the income stream of the of the country. Uh, and that helps hold together families and uh, uh, keep the nutrition up for children. So that's one area where we could say, if we can expend those resources now and people actually get it, uh, that we want to do. In some cases, that means uh, countries are canceling projects that they had underway uh, or that they were contemplating. And so those resources are freed up and they make more available for this type of program that I'm talking about. One other thing I'll mention is we have a big initiative on uh, transparency, working with the countries. That will pay dividends over the years because the country will be able to attract more investment when they get to the recovery phase of this crisis. In March, you spoke about how countries need to undertake structural reforms as part of their response to the pandemic. Uh, Now, obviously, structural adjustment programmes have long been a part of World Bank policy, but it can be controversial, uh, attracting criticism from those who accuse the likes of the World Bank and the IMF of using crises to undermine national sovereignty. How much structural reform do you want to see happen in countries alongside World Bank support or even as a condition of it? 
So countries need to always be looking for policies that will work better for their people. And some of them cost more. Uh, Some of them, though, begin to free up resources right away for the people of the country. For example, if a country has been providing subsidies for the use of gasoline, one can wonder, wait, who got the benefit of that and how much did it cost the country? And given that oil prices are lower now, would that be an opportunity for the government to uh, discontinue that subsidy? Oftentimes, it goes to people that have higher incomes, not lower incomes, so it's not very well targeted. And so we're looking for those reforms and wanting to help countries move in that direction so they get not only the World Bank resources, but freed up fiscal space in their own economy. The obstacle is vested interest in the countries. There's just a strong resistance to giving up uh, benefits that uh, had been enjoyed by the by the wealthy. Also, one goal that's been hard to uh, achieve is having a level playing field between private sector businesses versus those that are part of the government or are part of the military establishment within a country. Those businesses often are getting uh, beneficial treatment and it makes it very hard for talented entrepreneurial people to start a business because they can't break into the system. This is an old problem of development, uh, but one that we want to push forward on in a way that benefits people right away as we work in their countries. Let's talk about debt transparency. The World Bank has just published a trove of data on exactly how much the poorest countries owe to whom. And China emerges there as the biggest bilateral lender by far. It has in the past been accused of debt trap diplomacy, the allegation that it lends too much so that if a country has trouble repaying, it falls under Chinese influence or cedes strategic assets. Do you think China is responsible for debt trap diplomacy? Many countries had gotten to the point where their debt levels were unsustainable. What is difficult in the data is to know what the size of the contracts are, the interest rate, the terms of the contract. That There was a lack of transparency in the data. Governments were signing contracts where it was unclear what was actually being committed. This is something when I was at the U.S. Treasury, I began pushing forward the importance of the transparency in my testimonies in 2017 and 2018 to Congress, that this is important because you can improve the quality of what countries are getting, the debt contracts and also the investment contracts, only if you know what's in the contracts. What we're trying to do at the World Bank is disclose the data that's available and invite more data so that People in uh, developing countries know more about the contracts that are being entered into. They can see what's being achieved by their governments and create a feedback mechanism where you can constantly be improving the interaction with creditors. It's a concern of some that aid to poor countries during the pandemic will just end up flowing into creditors' pockets and specifically to China. Uh, So is that something you're worried about? And how is that affecting World Bank lending choices? That's uh, legitimate for people to look out for. But the G20 uh, consensus that emerged is that there be transparency 
in the debt. And also, there should be a monitoring of the use of the benefits from the debt moratorium. I, joined by Kristalina Georgieva, the managing director of the IMF, we in in March called for a moratorium on that debt repayments uh, that would extend to the repayments that would have gone to China. President Xi has committed uh, China to that uh, initiative and China is participating. And so the moratorium started on May 1, creating fiscal space for them to spend more on healthcare and other forms of economic assistance. And that includes the participation of China. So this is a very positive and consequential uh, development. We've added to that the transparency that's going on from the World Bank in terms of the websites and the information available on the debt so that people around the world can study it and come up with new ideas on what can be done to make country debt more sustainable. I suppose what goes around comes around in these matters, and China has suggested the World Bank itself might forgive some of its debts. So why are the World Bank and other multilateral institutions unwilling to participate in suspension of debt payments for this year, given that the amount owed to the World Bank and to other multilateral banks is almost as much as is owed to China. The financial model for the multilateral development banks is different from the bilateral uh, donors. They, by and large, can use appropriated money. For the World Bank, the model is that the repayments from some countries are part of the resource pool that's used uh, to make new grants, new loans. And so it undermines the financing model. The World Bank is issuing bonds around the world uh, on a weekly and monthly basis that depend on the repayment stream that's coming in from from their payment. And the other problem is for the the actual amounts of money, we're in a position now where we can provide very large net positive flows to the developing countries and especially the poorest countries, meaning they get much more from the World Bank group than their repayments are. We wouldn't be able to maintain that over time uh, if there weren't the repayment stream. So this is a bit of a misdirection because of the difference in the financing models for multilateral development banks. It wouldn't be good for development or for the developing countries to uh, forego those payments because then they would very quickly be losing to the new resources that we can provide. Henry. Perhaps we could uh, talk a bit more broadly about the goal of the World Bank. As we've, we've said, the institution's target is to eliminate extreme poverty, but extreme poverty is increasingly concentrated in a small number of countries. Uh, and we're talking here about the crisis in middle income countries as well. So how can the bank remain uh, relevant and involved in economic policy in middle income countries? And should it be involved there or should it just be focusing on, on the poorest of the poor? We want to focus on both and work in both. And the reason for that is even in in ones that have attained a higher income, there are still pockets or even large swaths of poverty. That goes to the question of inequality, which is even more severe in the developing world than in the developed world. So we want to have it as a goal to alleviate poverty wherever it's uh, occurring in the developing world. The question of how you do that uh, is on our minds all the time. One way I mentioned earlier is to give money directly to people. They're usually good stewards of resources. And so if you can get money to people, they'll find a way to make their lives better uh, with that money. Another 
critical aspect of letting people get out of poverty is to allow them to participate in the economy. That means market-based pricing. That means that they're allowed to take a job, women allowed to take a job, and to keep the proceeds of their work uh, rather than have it taken away by either a government inspector or a tax collector. So all of those processes are different country by country. So we try to have a directly engaged program in each country because the solutions are going to be different. I want to turn, if I could, to the broader social and political context. And you, of course, among others in major institutions, have given a strong anti-racism statement in response to the Black Lives Matter protests. At the same time, the World Bank is really coming under quite a lot of criticism of the arrival of a new Brazilian executive director, Abraham Weintraub, who has a history of, frankly, racist remarks. What's your response to that? The bank has uh, ethics rules for employees, uh, but they don't apply to country choices when countries select uh, executive directors. So I can't comment on on that. And it's a matter for the board of directors itself. They have made a, a public comment on that. Right. I mean, do you feel comfortable about it, given the, the, the strength of many of his comments, which are not just small p populist, uh, many of them would, I think, strike a lot of people as outright racist. I don't comment on the board. Uh, For bank employees, we have high ethical standards and uh, a very ambitious process to reduce racism has no place in the World Bank, uh, in the employees, nor in the the client states that we work in, nor in the suppliers, the contractors and the the projects that we work on. And we uh, work to reduce that. We've created a task force uh, that that looks at these issues. The topic that you're ra- raising is a separate matter for the board. But for bank staff, we are working every day to create a respectful work environment that is free of racism. And uh, as you say, you've had some protests from uh, the World Bank staff about it. I might just uh, pass back over to Henry in a second. But I- I'm just interested because I, I come more from a-, a background of global political coverage. You're a veteran. You've been at the State Department under George H.W. Bush. You've been Deputy Assistant Secretary at the Treasury under Ronald Reagan, working on that big tax cut in the mid-1980s. And you have worked as an economic advisor to President Trump's election campaign. Are there commonalities here? Or is the Donald Trump era something, as is often stated, entirely different of a different order in terms of its challenges, its disruptions, and its divisions. I don't so much want to uh, comment on uh, U.S. political affairs or other com- of our member countries. As as uh, president of the World Bank, I'm focused on developing countries and having uh, improvements in their living standards. But what I will say across the decades and around the world, economics is always looking for ways that th- this process can be enhanced. What What is it that allows people's living standards to go up? And what we know is that around the world, people are really talented. Uh, And so the natural tendency for people is to have their incomes go up because they work hard, they want to find they're innovative. And so we can look at tax systems. You mentioned those that have been uh, under discussion all the time in the US, but that also occurs in developing countries where you have a tax system that subsidizes one group of people uh, at the expense of uh, people that you really want 
to uh, help advance. But you do work within a particular political context, election year in the, in the US, and particularly the very strongly reactive figure of President Trump. And I'm interested, as you worked as an economic advisor to his campaign, so to some extent, you clearly had some sympathies with what he was trying to achieve. Do you feel that he listened to that kind of advice? And do you feel it's been beneficial? I can speak today to the World Bank relation with the US, which has been uh, good. We are just coming off a record-sized IDA replenishment that was agreed to in December of 2019. Uh, and the U.S. Uh, played a very constructive and large role in that. And also the implementation of the capital increase package for the World Bank and IFC uh, that have been very important to the uh, surge that the World Bank is able to do now in the face of the pandemic. Just one brief, I'm unsure because I notice you just have not used the words President Trump at all, although I have asked you a number of times, is is his impact on all of this as President of the United States, and one could ask this about any other president as well, including some that you've served under and assisted, is his impact on everything you describe neutral, benign or malign? I think it's very important. We talked at the beginning about what you're trying to achieve in a global nature. Are you trying to achieve global government in which elites would would instruct people around the world in how to how to set up their economies? Or are you trying to create an, a system of international cooperation where countries are are choosing their direction through transparency, the availability of information and sound uh, economic policies and sound microeconomic policies on education, healthcare, on food, on, on climate, and, and so on down the list. And so I, I'm encouraged by the direction that the world is going on this. And I'm particularly encouraged in this latest uh, debt moratorium for the poorest countries. Think what happened, the lender yeah. countries agreed as a group to stop taking payments uh, from the poorest countries. Uh, and so for that, I'm appreciative of the U.S. role mm. and also that of other countries around the world in order to make the world a better place. Henry? Uh, one thing that might be of interest to listeners who follow the world of economics is that the World Bank uh, has had quite a high turnover of chief economists. You've just appointed Carmen Reinhardt, and she's the bank's fifth chief economist in less than four years. What accounts for that uh, sort of rapid turnover of chief economists? Why is the World Bank struggling to retain them, do you think? I'm just very happy to have Carmen Reinhardt, a renowned figure in world development and in, in especially in the debt crisis that we're in the midst of. I'm very happy to have her join the bank. You know, the banks had quite a bit of turnover, but I've been very pleased with the additions that we've been able to make. Kristalina Georgieva went, went to become head of the uh, IMF. It's a loss for the World Bank, but positive for the world. Over half of the bank's senior management are women. I'll frequently be in meetings where the three other speakers are women, and we have good, strong discussions about what is best for the people in the developing country. How do we interact with their governments? Sometimes these are governments that are mostly men, uh, that uh, don't understand development in the same way that we do. And so we're we're trying to push forward as, as much as we can. I suppose you must get off the Zoom calls sometimes. And uh, last week, we asked Antonio Guterres, the uh, Secretary General of the UN, to prescribe us his pandemic reading list. And he suggested Stephen Pinker's 
book about the decline of violence and also values of the Enlightenment. One of our listeners suggested The Shipwrecked Mind on Political Reaction by Mark Leela, uh, an author I also happen to enjoy very much. What's on your reading list for uh-huh. between those meetings or indeed afterwards maybe with a, a gin and tonic, which you might need, to shed some light on the dilemmas of the day? Uh, this, you won't like this answer, but the World Bank itself puts out some very interesting research. So I'm sorry, but I'm going to point you to some of that. Our most recent report, Global Economic Prospects, really delved into what some of these challenges are in, in development. All those World Bank reports that you take home after work for fun. Yeah. What do you do to relax? <laughs> Even the members right. of the World Bank deserve some downtime. Thank you. You know, I have a big family. We're all uh, working together at, uh, at home. And uh, I frequently ride a bicycle often with my wife uh, in the DC area is a good biking venue. So I guess I'll leave it at that. I try to get as much exercise as possible in my off time. David Malpass, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Anne, and uh, thank you, Henry. And thanks to Henry Kerr, our economics editor. Thanks very much. And we'd love to know what you think on whether the old multilateralism needs a reboot of the kind the World Bank president was laying out, and is China's debt trap diplomacy a risk to the global order? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us your thoughts on this interview and any of the matters raised in it at Economist Radio. And for more of our journalism, please do subscribe. It's economist.com slash podcast offer for the best offer wherever you are. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.